Our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome. For those of you who are new to Trailhead Church, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at Trailhead. I lead our worship and collegiate teams. I'm also an elder candidate here. And it's my honor to open the word with you all this morning. We're going to continue on our series this morning. Uh, We're going to find ourselves in the final two of six um, antithesis statements. These these six statements were made by Jesus coming out of the Beatitudes, coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. He's basically uh, renegotiating the terms of what this law means. And this is the final two. So if you didn't go back to last week, if you weren't there, you just didn't have a chance to listen, I I recommend you do so. It's going to be the first in this kind of two-part mini-series that looks at these six antithesis statements Uh, But for those of you who are new, I'll give you a brief update to make sure you're on the same page with me this morning. Uh, Looking back at verse 21, we read the following. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, This is the first of that uh, antithesis statements that are made by Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, Jesus is looking at the crowd. Okay, now, now from his perspective, what he's seeing is a people who were so focused on not being guilty of murder that they'd forgotten the greater call to love their neighbor, right? They're so focused on fulfilling that letter of the law that they were forgetting to love thy neighbor. And in effect, they became enthralled with their performance for God and had missed loving God from the heart. So Jesus, rather starkly, was directing their attention back to himself, He was trying to get them to look once again at God. And in the process, he was upending many of their long-held and long-standing beliefs. Well, continuing in our text this morning, we find ourselves looking at these two final statements. And here again, we see Jesus internalizing the law and intensifying the law in a manner that, well, the crowd and maybe even some of his followers would have found scandalous. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. Now, before we get there, I want to introduce you guys a fantastic movie that I think is going to help play around with some of the themes we're dealing with today. Many of you are familiar with the greatest film of all time, but some of you aren't, The Princess Bride. Um, if you're not, let me indulge you for a moment. The main story centers around a man in search of his true love, okay? But the subplot centers around this guy, wherever he is. You can't see him. Okay, right here. Inigo Montoya. Inigo Montoya is a fantastic character. He's the subplot for the story, but he is in and of himself a fantastic story. Okay, he's a Spanish fencer. His father, Domingo, was killed when Inigo was just 11 years old. And Inigo witnessed the death of this father, and he vowed to avenge his father's death. Okay, 
he was killed, the Mingo, was killed by a nobleman with six fingers on his right hand. Okay, that's the clue to say, this man's the man who killed my father. His name was Count Rogan. So Inigo challenges Rugen to a fight, and Rugen, recognizing the child's tremendous talent, even at 11, decides, I'm not going to kill the boy, but I'll wound him. He gives him two scars, one on each cheek. And then he allows him to keep the sword that his father had made. Well, this moment would forever change Inigo's life. From that point forward, rather than studying with books, he'd be training with swords. Rather than playing with friends, he'd be competing in competition. Till eventually, Inigo became the world's greatest swordsman. Vowing to avenge his father's death, he would stop at nothing, even if it meant sacrificing his own life. And eventually that day came. The battle was fierce, but Inigo prevailed. He slayed the count. And after it all taken place, some of his sons were asking him, now that he's gone, what do you plan to do with your life? To which he responded in a somber tone. This is what he said. I've been in the revenge business for so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Cienigo, though he had avenged his father's death, he couldn't bring his father back. And in the process of obtaining revenge, he discovered that to be fleeting. Discovered it to not be satisfying to the full. He also discovered that revenge was costly. Though it gave him purpose, it had cost him everything he had. So I think like Inigo, and certainly like the ancient Israelites, we struggle with hatred. And we struggle with how much it can drive us. And it, it gives us purpose. It gives us clarity. It gives us focus. It allows us to battle through. But it takes so much. Most of us haven't lost a father to a six-fingered swordsman. It's just a story. But all of us have dealt with wounds far longer than we care to admit. Some of us have dealt with enemies who should have been our friends and friends who have become our enemies. Betrayal becomes one of the deepest wounds any of us will ever feel. But betrayal isn't the only pain that we face. In this room today, there's many of you facing lies and slander. Some of you whose families are bent on undermining your good. And still others reeling from legal battles and lengthy court fees. I know, I've heard the stories. And with all of this being true, how on earth do we love our enemy? How do we do it? How, how can Jesus expect us to turn the other cheek when the wounds linger so long? But I believe our text speaks not only to this, but fully to the question of our hope, a true hope. See, I believe the secret in turning the other cheek, the secret to loving our enemies, lies in the word love. Last week we looked at this, and I gave you two examples. I said, because Jesus has first loved us, we can love others in him. And one of the things I pointed out is that we respond to the love of the Father. And in responding to the love of the Father, it allows us to then forgive one another. I'm going to add to that this week. There we go. Respond to the love of God and forgiving one another. Those are two points we looked at last week. This week, we're going to add a few more. I'm going to talk about what it looks like to show that love and that we're free to love in turning the other cheek and by praying for our enemies. Now, these sound simple. You can read them on a page and readily understand them, but living them out is no simple feat. So look with me. Verse 38 of our passage. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
Now, as far as biblical texts go, this text is a fairly well-known text. Most people have heard something, even if they're not Christians, they've heard something about turning the other cheek or loving your enemy, right? That's a fairly common lingo. But as I noted last week, it's important for us, whenever we're reading Scripture, that we look at it from the lens of the original author and the original audience. And the reason we do that is because we want to understand the meaning of the text. So as we come to this first phrase, it's a rather mysterious phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, at first this seems to be implying some sort of defensive posture, a mutually assured destruction, if you will. But I believe that interpretation, that misses the actual context of the passage. See, during the time of Jesus, there were several schools of thought competing for one another, surrounding this concept of retaliation. And as with our previous topic, the opinion of Jesus almost always placed him squarely outside of those of his contemporaries. And the same proves true here. The phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it, it finds its genesis, it finds its root in the Old Testament. Scriptures every Jewish member would have known from a young age. And the law as it's described in Deuteronomy 19, I believe it's worth reading in its entirety, so that you and me, we get a picture, a view of what Jesus was actually commenting on. So look with me in verse 15, we're going to go back to Deuteronomy and we're going to read through the law that Jesus is commenting on. If you don't have it in your Bibles, I've got it here on a screen. This is the law. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he has meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now to our modern eyes, this law can seem needlessly harsh. But to the eyes of those in the ancient world, it stood as a radical call to proportional justice. The idea that the punishment should fit the crime. See, this law was designed to keep the aggrieved party from seeking out their own retribution. It was to make sure that an aggressor would not succumb to the vengeance of another person. See, the concept behind the law was actually intended to subvert our worst instincts. It was a law designed to preserve life, not to end it. And to that end, there were a lot of views on how this law should best be applied. Yet, as I noted earlier, Jesus' application of this law is going to go far beyond what any in the crowd would have thought. Continue with me in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay. Now the word resist. This is a, another curious phrase. What, what does Jesus mean by the word resist? Well, the word resist could be translated oppose. And that would have carried a legal connotation for those in Jesus' day. I've put a few uh, new sentences up there that effectively get to the same meeting when you're reading through this text. I'm going to read them together. 
That is to say, I say to you, do not oppose to a judge. Right? The case of a court. The one who is evil. Or you could keep the same word resist and, and simply put it into the court of law. Do not resist in the court of law the one who is evil. Why is this important? And Jesus is focusing his attention on the person's ill use of a court system. He is not limiting personal defense in the case of physical violence. To do so would be an ill-advised reading of the text. And I actually think this makes far more sense when you see his example that he gives. Because he goes on to say, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this phrase has been used by some to argue that Jesus' main commandment here is a call to pacifism. And while the debate between just war theory and pacifism remains intriguing, I don't believe this text actually speaks into that issue, and here's why. Striking a person on the right cheek from a right-handed aggressor would have signified more of a backhand slap than a frontal attack. Why is this important? Well, we know from sources of the day that a backhanded slap was a common form of a Jewish insult. To receive the back of the hand was akin to publicly being shamed before your peers. It was intended to bruise your pride, not your body. Now taken together, we see a vastly different picture emerge from this text. The word resist with its focus on the court systems combined with Jesus' new ethic to turn the other cheek, which is focused on not returning insult for insult, shows once again Jesus internalizing and intensifying the law. He internalizes it. He's calling his followers to rescind their legal right in matters pertaining to public shame or hurt pride. And he intensifies it. He's telling his audience to not even trade these insults with those who give them, even if it means receiving more. It's taken as a whole, the bigger picture becomes clear. Those in Christ are called to live out a kingdom ethic. And because they are in Christ... They're free to live that out. They're free to live with one another in a peaceful and patient manner. To not turn the court systems into personal vendetta machines. To not market the affairs of others for personal gain. In effect, catch what Jesus is doing. He's calling them to live the fuller meaning of Leviticus 19.18. To love thy neighbor as thyself. And make no mistake, this type of thinking would have been strongly opposed by those in the crowd. Strongly. It would have added fuel to the belief that Jesus wasn't just wrong, but dangerous. Okay, turn inward for a second with me. I want you to think about your own life. I'm guessing you've had situations where you've gone the extra mile for someone, where you gave more than they gave to you, situations where someone demanded from you and you exceeded their demand. But if you're anything like me, I can think of far more situations where my demands outstrip my generosity and patience. Where my call for retribution outstrips my desire to extend forgiveness and mercy. And if I'm being honest, if we're being honest, this kingdom ethic is hard. It's costly. But see, Jesus knows we have needs. In fact, he's going to speak to that in our upcoming weeks in the series. He, he knows we live in a world that is filled with loss, that's filled with real destruction. He knows the high cost of being used and taken for. 
because he lived it. Think of the ethic that Jesus lived out. He didn't use the court systems, though he had every legal right. He didn't curse others, even though they spat on him, derided him, mocked him, and eventually, yes, crucified him. And in all that, he never took matters into his own hands. He never once betrayed or relied on himself. Look with me in Matthew 26 as we look at the very moments of Christ's betrayal and we see him living his ethic out perfectly. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John's gospel will inform us that that was Peter. Sounds like Peter. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? There it is. The appeal not not casting his eyes on himself, casting his eyes up to his father. And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. In the very moment of his betrayal, Jesus looked at his disciples in the very moment and he pointed to the father. And in doing so, he invites us to trust the Father as he did. Look, in action, we are called to love our neighbor by turning the other cheek. And as we discussed before, that's an insult. That's not full frontal attack. He's not saying you can't defend yourself. But what gives us the power to do this? I believe we are enabled to love our neighbor when we trust in the unseen hand of the Father. As Jesus did when we trust that he will defend, that he will provide, that he will protect. For I believe one can love only as they have been loved and forgive only as they have been forgiven. This is the foundation of the kingdom ethic. It is the sweet fruit that is a a byproduct of a heart transformed by Jesus. See, since Jesus first loved us, I believe that that is the only thing that frees us to love our neighbor. And in turning the other cheek, I believe that's enabled by trust in the Father. The same trust Jesus displayed as he was being betrayed literally by his best friends. But I also believe that we live this out, that we live out this ethic to love one another through prayer. Turn with me as we look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's, Let's pause real quick before we continue on. And this is the final statement, and this is a unique statement because it's the first one to begin with a quote that's not entirely from Scripture. Love your neighbor comes from Leviticus 19.18, but hate your enemy doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. And indeed, I would argue that the passage in Leviticus is particularly speaking against hatred and vengeance and bearing a grudge. So where does Jesus get this? Well, scholars debate the point, but most believe Jesus was speaking against commonly held practices and beliefs of the day. That, yeah, it wasn't in Scripture, but it effectively was being taught and propagated within the Israelite community. And again, Jesus is going to take this, he's going to internalize and intensify in a manner that would have put him at odds with nearly every contemporary. He continues, but I say to you, love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
Now, I know in a crowd this size that some of you have real, true enemies. I know that. And I'm not talking about the fake sort of enemy, like the person who annoys you or the person who's overly demanding of you. No, I'm talking about the real, true people, the ones that keep you up at night, the ones that you've told off a thousand times in your mind. And I know what you're thinking. Brian, if you knew the enemies I had, if you knew the way they'd slandered my good name, the way they had wronged my reputation, if you knew what I was walking through, you'd probably be first in line to defend me. You'd probably be first in line to fight for me. And the problem is you're likely right, to my shame. See, I also have a problem with enemies, and I don't like them as much as anybody else. I want to vanquish the foe. I want to devour the evil one. But look at what Jesus says. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, note the internalizing aspect of this. All of us have enemies. And we are to love them. And some of those enemies are going to persecute you and I. And we're to pray for them. And then he intensifies it. He throws God into the mix. He says, God, who is holy, who is just, who is righteous, who is king, he makes the sun rise on the good and the evil. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And did you catch it? Did you catch Jesus' implicit question in this? Are you and I more righteous than God? I think sometimes when we get in these situations where we've got a right and a wrong balance, we can feel very, very justified in making God-like decisions. And Jesus is exposing it for what it is. He's saying, your heavenly father, the one you worship, yeah, him, yeah, he's loving all the people you love to hate. Read with me in verse 46. He gives this example, and this would have just blown the minds of anyone in that crowd. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So God, so he get, Jesus gives the example of God, rain, unjust, just. He just supposed that with tax collectors and Gentiles. Now, if you're standing in the crowd, if you're a Jew of the day, and you're hearing Jesus say this, you're, you're likely championing him. Listening Jesus rebuke Gentiles and tax collectors, you could do that all day. But you would not have appreciated, you would have had a big problem with the comparison he just made. Because when he talked about you as an Israelite, he didn't lump you in with the actions of God. He lumped you with the actions of your enemy, the tax collectors, the Gentiles. And in so doing, he's calling them and us to live out this kingdom ethic among the very people we feel justified in hating. It was a lot. It's like a deep pool and we just jumped in. How do we look, what does this look like in practice? How, How do we live this kingdom ethic out? How do we turn the other cheek when our enemies seem to slander and get away with it? How do we pray for our enemies? How do we desire to see the good in them when so much of us wants to see them destroyed? 
As I stated last week, all of these are difficult questions, and in my experience, none of them come with simple solutions. None of them. But we are given principles to guide us. Last week, we looked at the first one. Through forgiving one another, this is a way that we are free to love, and and forgiveness itself, forgiveness is an invitation to trust. I gave the example of Joseph, and I talked about how, even though he was sold into slavery by his brothers, even though they had left him effectively for dead, Reuben kind of came in and said, yeah, let's not kill the kid, but let's sell him off. What happens? The brothers come to him in their need. They have nothing but their need. He comes to them with power, strength, and the ability to crush them. And what does he do? Forgives them. Forgives them. And in that, he trusted that the Lord is the one who made all this work out for his good. Looked back at the evil that they had done. He looked back at the real harm and and pain he had suffered. I mean, the man was in jail. And he said, the Lord actually is the one who is behind this all. Adding to that this morning, we are to pray for our enemy and we are to turn the other cheek. And I believe that prayer is an invitation to love. Prayer is an invitation to love. Look with me. If you you have your online bulletin handy, look at that. If you don't, I've got it on the screen. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love somebody, you will presently come to love him. C.S. Lewis was never without words. (laughs) Brilliant. Much of the power of prayer comes in what it does in you, follower of Christ. I'm always amazed at how much my heart changes towards someone when I start praying for them. They can be my most vile enemy. And when I start lifting them up daily, stuff starts to change. See, the call to pray for your enemy is predicated upon one simple fact. You have an enemy. It means you're going to have people in your life that are not easy to love, and more than that, might actually be actively against you. He would not say pray for your enemies if you were supposed to have a life without them. And I know that sounds so simple to say. I know it's hard. I know And yet the act of prayer is an invitation. The act of prayer is an invitation to love. Here's the thing. This, the act of prayer is an invitation, wherever that screen went, people are going to feel threatened when you start doing this. People are going to feel threatened. And this is why. People deal with their enemies in one of two ways, typically. Either they hate them, castigating them as an evil that must be expunged, must be removed, must be cleared out, out with the old, in with the new. Or, they rename them. Naming what was previously evil in their mind as now good. So as to maintain a cogent worldview. And just so we're on the same page, everyone does this. doesn't matter if you find yourself particularly religious or not. All of us group people in right and wrong camps and judge them accordingly. But there is a third way in Christ. In Christ, you can love your enemy while acknowledging their wrongdoing. 
respond with forgiveness through the act of prayer. Trusting he, your king, will provide. I'll say that again. Loving the enemy and acknowledging the wrong. You're not having to hate and you're not having to rename. And we do this through forgiveness and prayer. Prayer is an invitation to love. And this is exactly why prayer is so threatening. When you start to love others like Jesus, you're going to be accused of every sort of malice in the book. And here's why. People want you to affirm their priors. They want you on their team. And they want you to be fully in or fully out. They want you to show up with your beliefs and stand up for yourself. They don't want you to humble yourself. Look, don't miss this. Jesus knows what it's like to love an enemy because he first loved me and you. When we choose the love of Christ, when we pray for those who hurt us, you will start seeing the strongholds come down. And they may be in you. But you'll start seeing them. Guys, we live in a time that gives credit to hot takes and viral tweets. We place honor on people who have never and will never be accused of loving their enemy. We got it backwards. When we pray for our enemy, we stand in the company of Christ. Who did so on our behalf so that we would know him. Turning to Jesus, I want to address a few opinions from the passages we've read today. Having read our scriptures, some have tried to paint Jesus as this free-loving spirit, uh, in part because of his redefinition of Deuteronomy 19.21. They would argue that he's redefining it away from proportional justice to a more utopic view of mankind, signifying this radical and free love. Others accuse Jesus from the same passage of being too optimistic in the face of injustice. With his calls for turning the cheek and loving his enemy, he's belittling the calls of the lost. And while I understand both views from a cursory reading of Scripture, let me read from you Jesus' own words as he describes his role within the law. Verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish I came to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, the smallest speck, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. When Jesus took the nails in his hands and his feet, it wasn't for the sins he committed. When he cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know, it was not for his benefit that he said that. And when at last he gave up his spirit, having cried out, it is finished, it wasn't defeat. This was the first act of love. It was the act that awakened the law of love which undergirds the kingdom ethic. It is the law we are now free for those in Christ to live. Far from removing proportional justice, Jesus on the cross took all of it. Far from being too optimistic, Jesus on the cross received all of our injustice. Not a dot passed. Not one dot passed. 
until he accomplished it. Which is good news for us. It means we have a Savior who saves to the uttermost. Friends, if you find yourself apart from Jesus this morning, having never placed your faith in him, then let me invite you. Let me invite you to a better hope. No caveats. Not one that's predicated upon your good works or your ability or your niceness or kindness, but one predicated upon his finished work for you. If you find yourself distant from Jesus this morning, but still a follower of him, then let me invite you to a surer trust, knowing that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you find yourself near to Jesus this morning, but your, your heart is hardened towards your enemy, then let me invite you to pray for them, trusting that the Lord has them in your life for a purpose that may not be known yet. That one stinks. <laughs> and if you find yourself with no other hope than Jesus this morning, broken and in need and no other source to turn to, then I invite you to rejoice in him. The ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, and the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the finished work of your Son on the cross. Lord, we come today with all sorts of malice and anger in our own heart, struggling to recognize that you stepped into the gap with us, that you forgave even though you had nothing to forgive. There's no wrong that you had. There's no sin you brought. There's no error you committed. And yet you first loved us. Lord, for those who are far from you today, I pray that they would stop running on their own strength, stop trying to figure it out with the mind that you gave them, and start trusting. That they would live in the freedom of knowing they are a creature created to worship you. For those who are struggling today, finding themselves on the outs with you, but knowing you, Pray that you would give them a, a strength and a wisdom and a call to come, to cast their cares and needs back on you. For those who are wrestling with hatred in the heart right now, and they know you and they love you and they're still really wrestling with this, God, I pray, give them a heart of peace and patience to bring it before you. Trusting that like Joseph, you often use the very difficult things in our life to glorify your name. And Lord, for those who come with no other hope, God, bless them. Pour upon them your favor. Father, we love you. We thank you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.